Welcome to Nanny Ogg's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode two, Weird Sisters. So last episode, we started our Discworld read through. I keep wanting to call it a rewatch, but it's not that's not what we're doing. We're doing a read through. And we started with Mort because I believe it's one of the best entry points in the series. We're going to follow it up with Weird Sisters, which is still not the first book in the series, but it is earlier in the series. It was published in 1988. It's the sixth Discworld novel and the second witch's novel after equal rights. The reason I picked this one to read next for our book club is because I believe it introduces the characters of the witches much better than Equal Rights does. It really, Equal Rights really revolves around one concept, which doesn't really feature any of the hallmark tropes of the witches' books, except for the character of Granny Weatherwax. And this book does a much better job of introducing that character or reintroducing that character. This book is also a loose parody of Macbeth and Hamlet, which provides, I think, a better entry point to the Witches series and to these characters. There have been three adaptations of this novel, including a play, an animated series, and a Channel 4 film. I have seen none of those adaptations, so I cannot speak to them, but I can speak to the novel, which I have read many, many times. So just a quick summary of the premise of the book. Again, we are going to be talking about spoilers because this is a book club. We expect that you've read the book coming into this or you don't care about spoilers at all. Either way, it works. But this book itself very loosely, as I said, follows a similar plot structure to Macbeth from the perspective of the three witches, Granny Weatherwax, Nanny Og, the namesake of our podcast, and Magrat Garlic in the small kingdom of Lanker. When King Vernus is murdered by his cousin Duke Felmet after his ambitious wife persuades him to do so, the witches must smuggle the heir to the throne out of the kingdom and wait for him to fulfill his destiny, which just happens to be in the company of a traveling group of theater players. But when the duke reveals himself to be anti-witch and the kingdom itself begins to wake up, the witches must take matters into their own magical hands, or broomsticks, as the case may be. So, Nigel, just what were your first impressions of this second Terry Pratchett book that you read? I liked it. I don't know whether I liked it more or less than, well, I rated it higher on Goodreads than I did more. I gave more four stars, and I think I gave Weird Sisters five stars. Which it's like, because Goodreads doesn't, you know, use a half star system like Letterboxd does. So I th- it's like a solid four and a half stars. I think you have a better, like, you get a better grasp of the humor straight on in than you do in more, definitely, because like, like you say, it's kind of like a Macbeth parody, and so it starts off with the, when shall we three meet again? There was a pause. Finally, another voice said in a f- in far more ordinary tones, well, I can do next Tuesday. <laughs> so. Yeah, it, it straight up tells you what it's going to be at the beginning of the novel. Hmm. Yeah, it does, it does a nice little bait and switch where 
it sets you up thinking, oh, it's going to be this brooding, self-serious Shakespeare-style thing. And there's definitely no shortage of people who take Shakespeare and they're like, yeah, this is definitely what I'm going to do. You know, things like the Queens of Inish Lear, is it called? The one that's like King Lear, but gender flipped. And then If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio, where it's like, I've taken the serious murdery part of Shakespeare and I'm running with it. Whereas Terry Pratchett's on the side of like, you know, the dick jokes and and all that. Exactly. I also think of A Thousand Acres, which is a retelling of King Lear by Jane Smiley. So that, oh, I haven't heard of that yeah, one. Yeah, it's set in Iowa, like during a, like on, on like farms in Iowa, which is really interesting. It's nice that they came up with like a fictional place to put it in. Yeah, I- Iowa doesn't really exist. We all know this. It makes sense. Yeah. It's entirely made out of corn. <laughs> that feels distinctly just Discworldy. <laughs> Iowa <laughs> is a fictional place in the Discworld. Well, actually, that brings me to my first question for you. So in Mort, we really got introduced to a couple of different locale of the Discworld. We got to see Death's Kingdom, the, the black and white kingdom. And we got to see Stolat, which is outside of Ankh-Morpork. And we got to see Ankh-Morpork itself, which Ankh-Morpork is like the famous city of the Discworld. A lot of books take place in Ankh-Morpork, even though the two that we read so far have not really taken place in Ankh-Morpork. This book introduces us to a new locale, which will be really important for the witches' books going forward, which is the Kingdom of Lanker. Do you want to give our audience a short description of Lanker as you sort of saw it from reading the book? Well, Lanker, I don't know. It seems it seems like your bog standard almost medieval type town, right? That this is like this is exactly what you would expect in a way, where Ankh-Morpork is kind of this bustling um, steampunk kind of like technocrat place, whereas Lanker is it's the place where a Shakespeare parody would happen, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it is like a tiny little kingdom. It's maybe like a few towns in the mountains. It's very rural. The people are really used to magic, which I think is a really funny gag. Like the there's a section and I didn't mark what page it was, but there's a section in the middle of the book where they talk about how there's all these portents all the time in Lanker and people just like like they'll wait like something will wake them up in the middle of the night and they're like, "Oh, it's just another bloody portent" and go to back to sleep again. Like, it's this kingdom that's, like, very, very quiet in some ways, and yet a lot of mystical, so many mystical things happen that the citizens have sort of developed this, like, no-nonsense attitude towards magic. Yeah, it's just like, really? Again? And so that's kind of, that kind of really drives the, like, kind of really drives it because when the king is like, no, actually, I, I hate witches, and I think that we should arrest them. And everyone's like, well, you can't really do that. They're witches. Right, which is pretty funny. Like the the attitude towards witches in Lanker is very much that witches are just sort of part of life. They sort of occupy this, like they're wise women, but they're also like healers, but they're also sort of adjudicators of justice in some ways, or, or at least of disputes. It's it's very interesting the place that witches hold in Lanker. And it's it's all introduced here. So what did you think of the humor of this book? You pointed out that it sort of gets into the humor right away on that first page. How did you feel like this 
that how Terry Pratchett's humor translated into this particular novel. Uh, I think it worked really well because I'm a sucker for cantankerous old people. <laughs> I think like old people are my favorite subset of the population. I feel like this is like if people don't know me, this is a weird thing to hear me say out of context. Whereas like if people know me, they're like, oh, yeah, Nigel, she she likes old people. She likes babies. She doesn't like children. So I like I think old people are really fun and cool and sort of bickering old people, not sour old people, though. And so you've got this, I don't know, you've got a really fantastic dynamic between Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax, where they're, for all intents and purposes, like a bickering old married <laughs> couple. Like, there's a quote where it's like, Granny Weatherwax was, you know, was never lost. She always knew where she was. The only problem was she didn't know where everything else was. That encapsulates that kind of, her character like, so perfectly. Yeah. I don't, I like, I, I'm not entirely sure what part of the book that's in, because I don't, I don't have any markers of quotes, but that one stuck with me. I'm like, okay, that's her in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, I guess we should talk about the witches before we go very much further. So, really, there are, are the three witches, which are supposed to be like stand-ins for the Macbeth witches. However, these three witches continue to be main characters in the future book. So, it's like the witches live on past the end of Macbeth, right? Like, they have their own things that they have going on so there's granny weatherwax who's really like uh, there's a there's a sentence in here where it's like of all the leaders the witches didn't have she was the most respected one like she she is really the leader of the witches but witches also don't have leaders because they're very non-hierarchical so that also tells you something i think about this character and she's old like we don't I think get a lot of old women protagonists in in books, but she's very elderly. She's seen a lot. We get Nanny Og, who is the kind of she cracks me up. She's like the dirty old lady who has been married three times. Although, like you said, the most important relationship in her life seems to actually be with Granny Weatherwax, even though she has all of these children and grandchildren. She's just like the matriarch of this like little tribe within Lanker. And, you know, she's constantly getting drunk. She's the owner of the most evil cat alive, Grebo, who we should definitely talk about here in a little bit. And then we have Magrat, which there's a joke with her name that's made in a later book, so I won't spoil it for you, but that that is her name, Magrat. And she is like the young witch. She's the apprentice, sort of. Like, she's a witch in her own right, but she's much younger than the other two, and she's still sort of learning from them. So what did you think about this dynamic between the three witches? I I enjoy, obviously, like, I, I there's nothing, there was nothing that I found, like, that put me off of the witches as a dynamic. Like, I didn't like Felmet, but I, I think you're not meant to like Felmet, obviously. You know, I was kind of ambivalent towards Varence as a ghost. I really liked Tom John, I liked the Fool, but I think the witches were kind of my favorite part of the book, which, again, I think is the point, but I feel like they treated Magra very unfairly <laughs> for a lot of the book. Just because she's not as old. She's not as old and not as experienced. And there's that quote where it's like, you know, where they rescue, they do the rescue in the dungeons. And it's like, you know, what makes a real witch? Well, you might start becoming one now. Right. They say to her. 
And she keeps making these comments because Magrat has this very specific idea of which, what witchcraft is, what being a witch is. She thinks that it's very like spells and potions and wearing occult jewelry and looking a certain way. And the other two witches don't think that that's what witchcraft is about. They're very much more about headology, which we'll talk about in a little bit as well. So she's sort of dealing with this sort of like her way of doing witchcraft is very different from the way that they do witchcraft. And they sort of look down on her for the first half of the book for the way that she thinks witchcraft ought to be. Yeah, because they propose the idea of joining a coven and, and Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax seem to be kind of like they think it's almost anathema because like you said, witches don't have leaders. Whereas our our kind of popular conception of witches seems to be that they, you know, they're all in covens of like 13 and all, all this kind of thing. Whereas they're like, no. Yeah, so they're, they're very not interested in having any other witches besides the three of them, right? And even then... <laughs> Yeah, and even then they get into a lot of arguments. And Magrat's really the one who like makes them meet, right? Like every month, she's the one who's like, "We have to meet. We have to have a cup of tea. We have to talk about things." There's a there's a section where so this happens later in the book, and well, I'm we're gonna talk about the time travel in this book a little bit as well. But there's a section where Magrat gives Granny some power while they're on their brooms and granny takes all of it and magrat is like well leave me a little bit so i can get all the way down to the ground safely and granny's like well you know that's your problem you'll figure it out and there's this really great moment where magrat she it says as she plunged towards the forest roof in a long shallow dive she reflected that there was possibly something complimentary in the way granny weatherwax resolutely refused to consider other people's problems it implied that, in her considerable opinion, they were quite capable of sorting them out by themselves. Which, I, that also, to me, told me a lot about Granny Weatherwax, because she does kind of come off as being a little disympathetic and a little selfish in the terms of the ways in which she thinks about the world around herself and the way she just assumes other people can take care of themselves. And I really appreciated that Magrat realizes it's it's actually kind of a weird compliment, like this idea of, oh, well, you can just take you you'll you'll figure it out. Like I, you're a witch, you can figure it out. And that doesn't really jive with Magrat's view of the world. And so it, it is interesting to also see Magrat's conception of what witchcraft is grow over the course of the book. Mm. Like it, it kind of is like a hallmark of older generations where Either they expect you to do something or they just believe you can because they had things easier and things were handed to them and, you know, there wasn't so much competition. But at the same time, it is kind of a bit problematic to assume everyone will be able to do the same things that you're able to do because not everyone is. But at the same time, Granny Weatherwax just believes you'll find a way. It's, hope <laughs> it's hopeful. Like, you know, Jeff Goldblum in uh, Jurassic Park, life finds a way. You'll find your way. Yeah, yeah, it is very. It's 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 an overwhelming sense of confidence in herself, but also in the people around her. Hmm. Is it? Do you think it's necessarily narcissistic? Because she couldn't give you know two shits about what Felnet is doing up until a point when when until like the land starts crying out because he he won't respect the land and he won't respect the kingdom and stuff. But it's like. Everyone around her, 
because they're around her, she thinks, oh yeah, they'll be able to do what they need to do and get shit done. Then, you know, do you think it's just like, oh yeah, because they're around me and I'm, you know, I'm so staunch and imbue everyone with this kind of like utilitarian know-how? Perhaps. She also seems to, re- even though she doesn't get along with many of the witches, she also seems to still respect witches in general. Yeah. So that might be part of it as well. I I don't know. I think that's a great question. Is Granny Weatherwax narcissistic? That's definitely something that I think will develop over the course of the other books as well. This theme of like, is she narcissistic or is she just really hopeful or confident? Yeah, I think it'd be an interesting point of comparison when we read the Tiffany Aching books, because those are ones I have read in the past where, you know, Granny Weatherwax is still in the picture, but she's not the focal point, so Tiffany Aching, you know, you get you, you get her direct opinion of what the elder witches are like. So whenever right, we get to yeah. them. Yeah, it does Tiffany Aching definitely gives a different perspective on Grainy Weatherwax as well. So we'll continue to sort of explore that character. What did you think of Nanny Og? I yeah, Nanny Og, she definitely has that like dirty old woman feel, but it's like that bit where they're talking about what to do with Felnet. I found it here on page 173 of my edition. Granny Weatherwax stalked through the passages of Lanker Castle like a large, angry bat, the Duke's laughter echoing around her head. You could give him boils or something, said Nanny Og. Hemorrhoids are good. That's allowed. It won't stop him ruling. It just means he'll have to rule standing up. Always good for a laugh, that. Or piles. Granny Weatherwax said nothing. If Fury were heat, her hat would have caught fire. Mind you, that'd probably make him worse, said Nanny, running to keep up. Same with Toothache. She gave a sideways glance at Granny's twitching features. You needn't fret, she said. They didn't do anything much, but thanks anyway. I ain't worried about you, Githa Og, snapped Granny Weatherwax. Er, snapped Granny. I only came along because Magrat was fretting, which I say is, if a witch can't look after herself, she's got no business calling herself a witch. And I, like I read on there because I knew actually it would it would tie back into the point of, you know, if she can't look after herself, she's no business being a witch. Yeah, there there is a lot of like witches. There are certain things, certain character tra- traits that make people witches. It's not necessarily the magic that makes people a witch. It's like certain certain qualities in their personality, like self sufficiency independent thinking, stubbornness. There seems to be certain things that make certain people witches. Yeah. And so Nanny Og is just like, Nanny Og is just like, can we just, can we just do these things and, and get done? Whereas Granny Weatherwax seems to be focused on like, how can we, how can we cause problems and make things fun? While at the same time, still not breaking any rules, you know? Oh, now let me, let me find the lyrics. Yeah, uh, it, it like it just reminded me then of the Madness song "Baggy Trousers," which is um, all I learned at school was how to bend, not break the rules. In regards to Nanny's suggestions. Yeah. Or to yeah to Granny Weatherwax, where it's like we we're not doing anything that would get us in trouble per se, but we're getting you know we're getting our own back, we're getting our little tit for tat here. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting that the witches, at least for the first good two-thirds of the novel, 
really are resistant to the idea of direct meddling in politics. And Granny says that's because if you meddle in politics, if you kill a ruler with magic and then replace him with another ruler, you have to keep using magic, right? Like you have to, you would have to keep using magic to rule. You couldn't just meddle and then get out of it, which I think is really interesting. This idea that these witches are clearly powerful enough. I mean, they're, they're clearly powerful enough to take over the kingdom if they wanted to, but they don't want to, and they actually think it would be pretty dangerous for them to rule in any sort of capacity. Hmm, there's, oh, what's the quote? I'm trying to find it now. The one where they show up with young Tom John and they find the crown. Like, at the beginning? Yeah, that's a really good quote. Where Granny Weatherwax puts it on her head? Yeah. Right, yeah, she puts it on and she, you know, just to see if it fits. And then she, it says, she smiled grimly. This is on page 27 in my book. Hmm. And froze as she heard the screams and the thunder of horses and the deadly whisper of arrows and the damp, solid sound of spears in flesh. Charge after charge echoed across her skull. Sword met shield or sword and bone relentlessly. Years streamed across her mind in the space of a second. There were times when she lay among the dead or hanging from the branch of a tree, but always there were hands that would pick her up again and place her on a velvet cushion. Granny very carefully lifted the crown off her head. It was an effort, it didn't like it much, and laid it on the table. So that's what being a king for you, is it? She said softly. I wonder why they all want the job. This idea that, like, she doesn't want to be in charge, even though, she, I mean, she wants to be in charge, but she wants to be in charge as a witch, not as a ruler. Yeah, because then, like, slightly further down, they have the line, crowns call out. So, like, it's like the, the um, Nine Rings, in a way, in Lord of the Rings, where you're fine, and then you put them on, and you have this, like, craving, this desire to rule and, you know, to be in power and dominate all that's around you. Right, and they seem to have this attitude towards ruling where it's like, ruling shouldn't be done by people who are actually clever. Like, it should be done by people who are just going to go through the motions, and they're going to do what they want, and they're just going to kind of keep their petty, you know, they're going to focus on petty things, not on clever things, because it's the clever people who end up being, like, corrupted by power and evil and doing all these terrible things. Yeah. It's an interesting point then when you get to the end where the person who's supposed to get the crown, Tom John, is like, I don't want to be the king. Right. He has the he has the moral fortitude almost to disagree and to say no because he wants to be an actor because, damn it, it's my it's not a dream. It's my life. Right. Yeah. And as per every horse girl film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting that at the end, the person whose life is most shaped by destiny, the person who is supposed to be king, Tom John, doesn't end up being king. But then the person who does become king is the fool who never thought that he would be king. Right. Like his it turns out destiny was shaping a different person's life. The whole book. Hmm. Actually, when you bring that up as well, because Magrat is dating the fool, who then turns out to be king, and it's, it, I think it forms like a really interesting companion piece to Mort at the end, where Mort gets married, and it's like, well, we can't make you a king straight away, and you have that, like, that wedding scene, and so uh, Weird Sisters wraps up in a way which feels not 
similar but perhaps concurrent to how more ends up well and interestingly enough and this is this is maybe looking ahead a little bit the romance between magra and the fool uh king vernus um because he's now the king it, it doesn't end like it sort of ends on a note here the, the book ends on a note where she's like still in love with him and he's still in love with her but they don't quite they're not on the same page they he ends up the last we see of him he falls asleep in her cottage and she's at, still out on the you know in the on the moors in the in the open with granny weatherwax and nanny og and they all get drunk together right so mm. it's it's interesting that it sort of ends the book there on this really unresolved note, whereas with Mort, the everything's resolved, right? Like, he's with Isabel, and Kelly is with Cutwell, and it's all just sort of, like, wrapped up neatly, even though, as we mentioned in the last episode, there wasn't a lot of foreshadowing of either of those relationships. Yeah, I think definitely the relationship between the Fool and Magrat was, like, I, I vied with it more. I know I don't particularly vibe altogether that much or believe love stories in fiction, but I thought this one was relatively well developed. I could appreciate, you know, because they, they actually did the whole like courting phase and the awkwardness of like young first love, which I thought was really, you know, it was really nice to see. 90% of true love is sheer embarrassment. Yeah, and the other 10% is acute embarrassment. <laughs> Yeah, they they both are like instantly attracted to each other even though the the way that both characters are described is not particularly flattering, well, at least not physically. And but they but they're both very attracted to each other. They're both very awkward around each other. Although by the end I really appreciated Magrat's like she's trying to make him work for it, but she also legitimately gets mad at him at one point and she's like I'll be washing my hair. And she's, he's like, well, when will that be? Whenever. Like, it's this great, it's this great moment between the two of them. Yeah, I guess we're going to have to continue reading The Witches to see if this, if they ever do get in the same place at the same time. God, I hope, I hope it works out for them. The other question I was going to ask you about The Witches before we move to some of the other characters is really the way that magic and headology are introduced in this particular book, which those are two themes that will continue throughout the witches' books. So unlike the wizards, because we got to see Cutwell and some of the other wizards from the Unseen University in Mort, who seem much more interested in spells and magic, Granny Weatherwax is actually kind of resistant to spells, to spell casting. She's clearly very powerful in the very few situations that we see her wield magic. And Magrat wields magic at one point, very powerful magic as well, when she opens or when she causes the, the door to explode into a tree, basically, in the dungeon. Mm. But it seems like Granny Weatherwax is very resistant to that idea. And she prefers what she calls headology, which is sort of a applied psychology, like understanding people and getting them to do what you want them to do. How do, you, how do you feel like that compares with the wizards that we saw in Mort? I, I think it's quite interesting as someone who comes from... So I don't want to be very presumptive about American culture and stuff, but I, I realize when I started the sentence, you, you probably have no idea where it's going. Um. <laughs> Not at all. I'm excited, though, to find out where it goes. 
I think America doesn't really have a good tradition of like women in the long run. Like obviously, you, you could know, just you have end famous that kind of there and it would work. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, you know, you kind of have like American folk heroes, um, which uh, like, you know, you think of Betsy Ross and stuff and you think of Sacagawea, but she's, you know, she's one of the native people there that got her land stolen and stuff. So an awful lot of, the strong women, at least in the historical legend of America, which is, you know, it's a very young country, aren't really American. Whereas, like, in Ireland, you have a lot of, you have a lot of traditions of, like, healing women and stuff, and, you know, it's really interesting because the word for which is Kaliak, but it also translate. it's also a translation for a veiled woman or nun. So, you got, you know, it's kind of depressing at one stage because you're like, oh, they've demonized women who would employ headology and they've made them witches. But at the same time, it's, you know, you've got this nice link where maybe it's not mysticism. Maybe they're just, I don't know, employing empathy. God damn it, fucking men. <laughs> yeah, so there was, Terry Pratchett actually gave a speech at Novacon in 1985. So shortly before he wrote, weird sisters and it was called why gandalf never married and the speech is about kind of the difference in the traditions of like wizards and witches and why wizards are tend to be like celebrated like you got wizards like merlin you have like the druids and you know these types of mythological male practitioners of magic but on the other hand witches are usually burned or they're thrown out or they're sort of you know, the magic that they do is not considered as important as, like, the wizard They're evil, magic. like Cersei and Morgan Yeah, it's and either Morgan evil or it's, like, not as powerful. Mm. One, I wanted to read a short quote that he said about this from the, from the speech, where he said, Now, you can take the view that, of course, this is the case, because if there is a dirty end of the stick, then women will get it. Anything done by women is automatically downgraded. Magic, according to this theory, is something that only men can be really good at, and therefore any attempt by women to trespass on the sacred turf must be rigorously stamped out. Women are regarded by men as the second sex, and their magic is therefore automatically inferior. There's also a lot of stuff about man's natural fear of a woman with power. Witches were poor women seeking one of the few routes of power open to them, and men fought back with torture, fire, and ridicule. And so... Obviously, that's still kind of a binary view of gender, but it does sort of make sense in the way that we think about fantasy and the way that witches and wizards are portrayed. He also says there's not really a male version of witches. Like, wizards are actually a separate category from witches. He does say, like, you know, yeah, 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 warlocks, whatever, but that's not really this, it's not really the same thing as what you were talking about when you were talking about, like, a healer. And so... I do think that the fact that he's created two different systems of magic, one that's primarily done by women, and it seems more communal almost, like headology is communal. It's an understanding of people and it's an understanding of community versus like the more like ritualized magic, I guess, that the men do at Unseen University, more bureaucratic magic almost. Yeah. So I think it's really... I think it's an interesting point you bring up as well, because, like, Terry Pratchett's paper was on why Gandalf never married, but, you know, you see it all throughout fantasy, like, the Wheel of Time as well, you have a, 
a magic system which is divided along the gender binary with side R and side in. And a lot of the practitioners of the female side of the magic are aligned with healing, like Nynaeve's, you know, and the Aes Sedai. All of their rules are around, you know, helping people and not, don't, you know, don't strike anyone down unless they're attacking you. Whereas all of the male magic is specifically like aggression based and the taint that was put on the magic made them go crazy using it and just like fuck shit up. So it really is prevalent in fantasy in a way. Yeah. And there's a, there's a scene later in weird sisters because granny is famously just brilliant at headology where she, it's when she confronts the Duchess and she like removes all of the like little compartmentalized boxes in the Duchess's mind so she can see who she is as a person. And she says, this is simply the worst I can do. It's all right and proper too. A witch should act like that, you know. There's no need for any dramatic stuff. Most magic goes on in the head. It's headology. Hmm. I don't wanna I don't wanna like try and turn this into um some sort of proselytizing for radical empathy but it really does feel like that a lot of the time yeah where she she just understands how people work and so she's able to sort of manipulate them into doing what she thinks is best for them or into being a better community which i think is interesting yeah all right let's talk a little bit about some of the other characters and some of the other things that happen in this novel so obviously this is very Shakespearean, right? It is very loosely Macbeth and Hamlet, although it does have other Shakespearean elements in it. So they even have like a Shakespeare analog, Huel the Dwarf, who is sort of the playwright. He is, it's explained that he has these like bursts of inspiration that kind of just come shooting through the air and they all hit him basically. And so he's constantly shown writing and he writes a lot of like, very close to Shakespeare, but not quite Shakespeare lines. But he also gets inspiration for other types of play, acting, theater, film, things as well. What did you think about the Shakespeare elements in general and the Huell character in particular? I, like, I mean, I'm an English student. I'm an English nerd. I really like Shakespeare. I started reading Shakespeare when I was like comparatively very young and really enjoyed it and you know you have that kind of presumption when you're doing it where it's like oh Shakespeare oh the English isn't like how we speak it so it must be boring gosh but it's really good and I really enjoyed well might I be permitted to read like a a bit of a long extract from the book oh of course it's one of my it's one of my favorites and it involves Tom John and well it's the scene in the pub I yeah I didn't mean he began. In fact, calling for silence was a sufficiently rare event in the middle of a tavern brawl that silence was what Tom John got, and silence was what he filled. Wells started as... Why is it Wells? It says there. Anyway, Wells started as he heard the boy's voice ring out, full of confidence and absolutely first-class projection. Brothers, and yet may I call all men brother, for on this night... The dwarf craned up to see Tom John standing on a chair, one hand raised in the prescribed declamatory fashion. Around him, men were frozen in the act of giving one another a right seeing to, their faces turned to his. 
Down a tabletop height, Huel's lips moved in perfect synchronization with the words as Tom John went through the familiar speech. He risked another look. The fighters straightened up, pulled themselves together, adjusted the hang of their tunics, glanced apologetically at one another. Many of them were in fact standing to attention. Even Huel felt a fizz in his blood, and he'd written those words. He'd slaved half a night over them, years ago, when Vittler had declared that they needed another five minutes in Act 3 of the Kings of Ankh. Scribble us something with a bit of spirit in it, he'd say. A bit of zip and sizzle, you know. Something to summon up the blood and put a bit of backbone in our friends in the haypenny seats. And just long enough to give us time to change the set. He'd been a bit ashamed of that play at the time. The famous Battle of Moorpork, he strongly consisted of about two in a swamp on a cold, wet day, hacking one another into oblivion with rusty swords. What would the last King of Ankh have said to a pack of ragged men who knew they were outnumbered, outflanked, and outgeneraled? Something with bite, something with edge, something with a drink of brandy to a dying man. No logic, no explanation, just words that would reach right down through a tired man's brain and pull him to his feet by his testicles. Now he was seeing its effect. He began to think the walls had fallen away, and there were, was a cold mist blowing over the marbles, its choking silence broken only by the impatient cries of the carrion birds. And his voice. And he'd written the words. They were his. No half-crazed king had ever really spoken like this. And he'd written all this to fill a gap so that a castle made of painted sacking stretched over a frame could be shoved behind a curtain, and his voice was taking the cold dust out of his words and filling the room with diamonds. I made words, Huel thought, but they don't belong to me. They belong to him. Yeah, and of course, like, this is reflecting the the gift that I think it was Nanny Og gave him because each of the witches bless Tom John with a gift, mm. which is very fairy tale. It's very Sleeping Beauty, right? And she gives him the, he'll always remember the words, which... yeah. Because, like, ends up being he doesn't really speak as a child up actor. until he comes out with full-fledged monologues. <laughs> That's right. I had forgotten about that. But, yeah, I mean, it, it is clearly supposed to be very Shakespearean. Well is, is very sh- much like Shakespeare in that he's writing these things. And I, I love that excerpt that you that you read because, to me, that is the best description of Henry V, which is clearly what that monologue is based on. That yeah. I've heard, but, ever heard. Uh, like, you've got all these, like, li- funny little dialogue hat tips, in a way, that, uh, you know, point to things in Shakespeare. And, uh, like, as well, the fool feels very much King Lear. So you've got a, a nice little smorgasbord of um, Shakespeare going on. Even um, the theater where they're in, the disc. I wonder what that could be a reference to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the disc, which is, yeah, a reference to the Globe Theater, famously... Famously built by Shakespeare. I also really appreciated the other inspirations that kept sleeting into Huel's brain that keep getting jumbled in with the Shakespeare as well. So we get references to the importance of being earnest. We get references to waiting for Godot, which I thought was very funny. And even Charlie Chaplin, the Marx Brothers get a reference in there. There's a bunch of different things. I mean, I didn't even get all of them. I I believe that if you go on Google and you Google like ref- meta references in Weird Sisters, you can find any number of Reddit threads dedicated to tracking down yeah, it, like, all of the references. This one felt like Ulysses 
almost, where it's like there's so much packed into it that you would need another book just to do um, the annotations. Just for just to figure out what references the Huel character is making, because it almost does read like a meta commentary on playwrights and inspiration and the different different things that have come out of mm. those types of auteurs. I like I'm hesitant. I'm always hesitant to use the word auteur when I'm describing someone, and that's mainly because of like what my stance is in relation to the literary canon. But, like, I think I can afford Shakespeare that. I, I think I can afford Shakespeare that uh, title. <laughs> I think for me, it's because I, I, I also am very much against auteur theory because of the way it disenfranchises certain people. But I think it almost fits in the case of Huel, just because he he's clearly a character that's supposed to be an amalgamation of different playwrights and different creators. So that that's why I use that yeah. specific word when he, talking about he him. He all together and draws it into one li- neat little bow almost. What did you think about the Macbeth elements of the text? Felmet and Lady Felmet, the ghost, King uh, Vernus. And then, of course, we get the Hamlet with Tom John who leaves and then comes back. And he's also in a play that shows the, the death of the old king. It's sort of mixing those two plays together. It was surprisingly well done for a book like that attempts to blend two almost like wildly disparate uh Shakespeare plays together. Like I I enjoyed what they were doing with the Macbeth stuff. I think that the like because you got Terry Pratchett's sort of, you know, trademark humor where they're like, "Oh no, he he fell down the stairs on his sword and it was quite clearly an accident." Kind of a way. And it's a catching accident. Exactly. You can catch it if you talk too much about it. it you know, it, it seems to heavily imply the large murder spree that Macbeth ends up going on in the original play. It, like, it's very smart with how it plays fast and loose with the texts. Right. I mean, it's willing to to take, like, the biggest hallmarks of both of those texts and parody them without feeling like it's trapped by those texts. Because, like, Felmet is clearly insane. Like, the book makes that very clear. And even though Lady Felmet is supposed to be our analog to Lady Macbeth, Felmet is the one who feels like he has blood on his hands for the entirety of the book. And the joke is, is that he keeps trying to wash the blood off, but he keeps using more and more abrasive materials to try to wash the blood off. And it ends up making him actually bleed because of the materials that he's using, like sandpaper and like a wire scrub brush, it, it is, he's sort of taking the stuff from Lady Macbeth and moving it over to the more Macbeth-like character, but it's also played as a joke. Hmm. Like, yeah, all of the sort of domineering aspects of Lady Macbeth are in Lady Felmet, but any kind of um remorse or... Um, like even perturbation to do with uh the crime they just committed is given over to Felmet instead of having Lady Macbeth be somewhat sympathetic. I suppose I kind of don't like that because I thought it was it it's a really nice it's a really nice parallel in the original text where Lady Macbeth before she dies is worried about the guilt in her spot and you you know you don't really have a full kind of you don't you don't sense that they really love one another that it was almost a, like a marriage of opportunities 
and she's like out out damn spot but when macbeth's when macbeth hears about her death he really does show his emotion and he par he paraphrases that with um out out brief candle so by giving by giving all those all of the softer moments to Thelmet, I feel I feel almost a bit disappointed because you don't ha- like to be the evil person, whereas Lord Felmet is like what what's it they say about his mind? It's like a clock. It's it wound up like a clock, and sometimes it goes cuckoo. Yeah. So in that sense, I don't like that. Uh, the way they went about that, but I understand why they did it, because they need to have Lady Felmet be the person that the witches take to task, really, at, at the end of the book, by breaking up all the little compartments in her head. Right, which she immediately bounces back from, and is just like, yeah, I'm a bad person. So, yeah. like, which I actually appreciated, because I have actually always thought that Macbeth's one real flaw as a play is that the Lady Macbeth from the first half of the play and the Lady Macbeth from the second half of the play seem like two different people. And I have never completely understood how the Lady Macbeth from the first half of the play gets to the Lady Macbeth who basically commits suicide at the end of the play. Have you ever seen the film Lady Macbeth? Oh, it's directed by... William Oldroyd. It stars Florence Pugh. I have not, but I'm willing to watch anything Florence Pugh is in. It is quite excellent. It is not about the Shakespeare play. Like, it's not not directly about the Shakespeare play. It's not, like, retelling it from her point of view or anything. But it is indirectly about that character. Like, the main character played by Florence Pugh is supposed to be a Lady Macbeth-like character. And it really gives a better insight, I think, into what that character would be like. So I, I would recommend it. You definitely, like, you definitely need to show that change. I'm thinking of, like, Denethor in Lord of the Rings, especially when you can see John Noble play him, where it's like, he doesn't give a shit about Faramir, yes. you know, Faramir, he wishes Faramir had died and Baramir had lived, but then when Faramir, he thinks is dead, he's, you know, he's like, well, fuck, I have, you know, like, I, I'm really actually upset over the death of my last son and the line of stewards is over. So we need to, we need to all die. Yeah. But that to me made sense. Like, and especially like you said, with John Noble playing that character, I could see where we got from the first part to the second part. Whereas in the play, it almost seems like he got a different wife somewhere halfway between, between the first part of the play. And yeah. The which you know part. is unrealistic because if there's anyone getting a new spouse in that play, Lady Macbeth is getting a new husband, not the other way around. She yes, definitely wears exactly. the trousers. Exactly. And that's clearly what's going on with Lady Felmet and, and Felmet, Duke Felmet in this play. I don't know. Like I, I thought that they worked pretty well in the Macbeth and Lady Macbeth roles, but I, I honestly was kind of bored by the Ghost King Vernus storyline. Like, I get that it's supposed to be, like, a parody of the ghost of Hamlet's father, but to me, it just seemed more like a bit than an actual plot point. Yeah. But also, like, you do have the ghost of Banquo comes back to haunt Macbeth, but that's not until later in the play, so it doesn't analog with King Duncan, who, you know, 
King Varence gets murdered like King Duncan does, but uh, he plays the role of Hamlet's father and Banquo, which it like it doesn't really right. uh, match up one to one. So you got this a little bit of a, a dissonance almost. He could have cut Pratchett could have cut all of those scenes out, and it still would have worked as a book. Like the ghosts don't really do anything besides maybe adding some Shakespearean flair to it, which I mean might be the point, I guess. But to me, it just I was I just wasn't as impressed with the scenes with the ghosts as I was with the scenes involving Quell or the witches. Yeah, I did think it was nice that um, the witches took a bit of the the castle with them so that he could roam around and not be confined to the place where he died. Can I give a can I give a shout out? I don't, I don't know whether they'll actually listen to this. Shout out to um, William A. Wellman of the Hello from the Hallowoods podcast because it's exactly what Percy, who is a ghost that's bound originally to a piano, happens that like Diggory Graves breaks the piano and they take a little key of the piano with them so that Percy can go along with them and it's it's really adorable because that's a love story whereas. In Weird Sisters, it's just like, (laughs) Terry Pratchett really wanted the ghost to be around for some reason. He reminds me of Huel, who they keep asking him if he really needs the ghost in the play, and he keeps saying, the bit with the ghost is the best thing I've ever written, it stays. I wonder if that was an actual conversation Terry Pratchett had with his editor. Now that you mention it, I, I didn't put that together when I was reading it, but it makes an awful lot of sense. Because Terry Pratchett <laughs> would be exactly the person to write kind of a meta commentary like that, where he'd be like, oh, you have this criticism of my book. Well, now I'm just, well, now I'm just going to, I'm going to include that. And therefore it's like, it's rationally sound. <laughs> yeah. See, I can make it work. I can put you in the book. So just a couple of other points I wanted to hit on. So What did you think of the time travel element of this book? Because I thought I I had forgotten that they traveled in time or that they moved the entire kingdom around time, as as the book puts it, as the narrator puts it. And I actually found myself thinking as I was rereading the first half of this book, wait a minute, doesn't this book have to skip ahead like 15 years in order for Tom John to be the right age from what I remember the end of the book? And sure enough, Granny Weatherwax decides to move the entire kingdom of Lanker 15 years into the future so that way Tom John can come back sooner rather than later. To be honest, I don't have an opinion on it because I kind of couldn't care. Like, I understand why they did it. This is another one where it's like, I understand why they did it, but at the same time, if they just did a time skip in the book, like, you know the way that in more... Pratchett uh, draws attention to the the cinematic pan that he does. You could do that without the, like, because from what I understand, time and light in Discworld are very important, and the speeds at which they move are very important. Not not just in like Thief of Time, but they specifically draw attention to um how fast disklight moves in Mort. So I feel like you're more you're more likely to fuck with things that maybe don't need to be fucked with. I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. But it seems like peak Granny Weatherwax that she would basically be like, this isn't going fast enough. And like, 
move an entire kingdom with magic yeah. to get things to be the way that she thinks that they ought to yeah, be. Yeah, she, she's like problem solved. I have, I've coined a term for this from, um, are you aware of the Sherlock Holmes video games, like The Devil's Daughter and Crimes and Punishment? No, I had no idea. I'd really recommend that there were video you can get games. them for PlayStation, and I, which I know you have. I don't know whether they do them for Xbox, which I think you have. So I don't know whether this will make it into the final one, me doxing your consoles. <laughs> They're made by, I think it's Frogware <laughs> is the developer of them. And it's really cool because you get like, you get all these different disparate clues and then you go into like Sherlock's mind palace and they appear as blobs and you got to like link them together and see whether they fit. But I came up with a term for because I used to just brute force my way through them sometimes where I do every possible combination. And I think it applies a lot to this kind of problem solving, which is picking a lock with a sledgehammer. Yeah, so you could wait <laughs> 15 that. years. That is a great phrase. Or you phrase. could just move the entire kingdom around time by 15 years and get the problem solved sooner instead of trying to figure out any other subtler way. Well, and I love that like there are very little consequences to what she does. Like, Lanker is such a rural kingdom, and the people there are so used to strange things happening that there's just been like basically by the end of the book there's just been a couple remarks that some travelers look a little older than they should like that's it that's the only consequence to what happens i think though in a way that's kind of justified that there's no consequences because they specifically draw attention to how the land is crying out because felmet is going to mistreat it so i feel like you know they get some sort of wiggle room to move it forward to fix this problem because the land will be made right again once Felnet is out of power. Right, and we get we get a glimpse here. Uh, the land is very interesting. The kingdom as an entity that's like a mind almost that's made up of smaller minds, that's something that's going to come up in Pratchett a lot. These ideas of different things that we wouldn't normally think of as having anthropomorphic qualities as sort of having them and this idea that granny weatherwax can reach out and touch other minds she often it becomes a joke in later books and we can talk about that when we get to it but she can like reach out and touch other minds even things that you wouldn't think of as having a mind the scene where she's sitting out in front of her cottage and all of the animals show up because they're all sort of possessed by this like mind of a kingdom that's deeply unhappy with Felmet as a ruler. I just thought that was such a like eerie, awe-inspiring scene. And by awe, I'm talking about like the gothic yeah. definition of that word. Like religious awe. Right. Like the 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 like terrifying awe, right? Where you're seeing something that's just like almost beyond your ability to understand. What did you think of the whole kingdom awaking or the kingdom like uh, magrat calls it like a large dog like it doesn't actually have a sense of right and wrong it just wants somebody yeah what is what is it, it that they what is it that they he's exercising his droit d'assigneur like his right which is a french phrase which yes. is bizarre <laughs> that it exists on the disc world as is but he's exercising um his right to lordship if i'm remembering my french right because i think the lord of the rings in french is le seigneur des Agneaux. Uh, I know. I, I don't know how you, I forget how you pronounce the French word for ring. 
So I think it's a, a really cool way of visualizing it because a, an awful lot of fantasy stories you'll hear things like, oh, the land is crying out. Like she even thinks about like, maybe the heartbeat of the land is only once a year, you know, in the spring. Like what, you know, like she starts to think about the ways in which a kingdom might have other systems that make up a body. Also, yeah, the the phrase that they use, it, it's another phrase, it's a French phrase for prima noctis, which is the right of a ruler to sleep with the wife when on her fir- on the first night of a wedding, which is like a weird medieval tradition for some kingdoms. And so like part of the joke is is that like he is the father of the fool because he exercised his right to prima noctis even though she was, like, married to someone else. It's just, it's fascinating. Yeah. So really, the takeaway is for that um, royals should not exercise. And then, last but not least, I wanted to bring up another reoccurring character from the witches' books, because we will be talking about this character even more in the next book that we read, I believe. Or at least the next chronological book that we read, Grebo. The most evil cat, who is yeah. described in like the as like the nastiest cat that just is like mostly scar tissue. He's like missing an eye. He, by sheer dint of effort, he is the father of like all generations of cats in the in Lanker. Like he doesn't get along with anybody except for Nanny Og, who still treats him like he's like a little baby kitten. How did you feel about Grebo as a character, even though he's just, like, this cat? I liked Grebo. I, like, Grebo is a cantankerous old man in the body of a cat, is sort of a way I could put it. Yeah, he's like a, he's like a cantankerous, lecherous old man. <laughs> yeah, which is a horrifying um, <laughs> string of words to put together, but... He really is. And it's me of Buttercup, the cat in the Hunger Games that Prim has, because that, like, it's just an absolute monstrosity of just being <laughs> fucked up. It's true. I, but also, like, you know where your loyalties have to lie with this cat at the same time, because there's that, like, when Death goes to collect Varence's soul, he, you know, he says that he doesn't like cats. And I'll, I'll find the quote now. I have. I have this one actually saved, um, and I can use I can use my death voice. So, I hate cats. Death's face became a little stiffer, if that were possible. The blue glow in his eye sockets flickered red for an instant. I see, he said. The tone suggested that death was too good for cat haters. I I, I want to know now what what pets, if any, did Terry Pratchett have? Did he have cats? Because you get the feeling when you're reading Discworld that any time a cat comes up, you like it's on the side of right. Yes, I I think that that is definitely true. Although they're not nice, like he doesn't portray them as being cute little kittens, you know, or or like animals that like they're always like these oh, scrappy. Yeah. Even his, we're gonna definitely see some characters that are dogs in later books, and they're even his dogs are very scrappy. Like you said, fucked up, like, you know, just like these messed up animals that are also somehow really endearing. Yeah, I, I meant like nice in the sense that they're not committing active villainy. Right. Although, I don't know, Grebo does sort of commit some acts of villainy. <laughs> yeah, I will say like, you have the whole argument of 
like animals just do their own thing because they're animals and they don't have a conscious will of their own really like humans do they have no conception of right and wrong blah 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 but at the same time all the cats in terry pratchett are portrayed as intelligent beings who are you know as smart if not smarter than most of the humans around them most of the time you never see any kind of like senseless animals yes it is but i also think I love, though, that Grebo, like, everybody in the town hates Grebo because he's always, like, messing with, like, their cats or, you know, like, randomly attacking them or something. But Nanny Og still loves him because the book says she still sees him as, like, the tiny fluffy kitten that he was when she first got him. And I feel like that's true for a lot of pet owners, even of animals that are, like, really messed up, is that they... Like, it's their baby. And so, like, they're always going to have, like, a soft spot for that animal. And I just, I love that that's the distinction, is that Nanny Og is his mom, and he behaves for her, but not for anybody else. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Although, I think, uh, like, an interesting parallel that would have, not a parallel, but, like, plotline that they could have done, which feels strange because these books are, like, what, 30 years old at least? Like, the earlier Discworld books? Yeah, this is Yeah, this is like so, 33 yeah. years old at time of recording. And so it's strange to go, well, Pratchett could have done this because Pratchett unfortunately is dead. In a, it would have been really interesting if Grebo was a stray or, you know, like a shelter cat who had, you know, like a really hard life and was one of those ones where it's like, oh, you know, no one will ever love him because he's so like anti-human. And then, you know, he can be rescued and have a nice life with an owner that actually cares about it. Because he does feel like a shelter cat. One of those ones that's like, has definitely been through the wars. Well, and we always think about, I think that part of this too is that like, he's an outdoor cat, which I don't think that letting your cat outdoors is very ethical, but that's a very, that's a very different podcast. Hello, and welcome to Letting Your Cat Outdoors podcast. Yeah. <laughs> But the truth of the matter is, is that like a lot of people, especially in rural areas, let their cats outdoors. And unfortunately, life outside is not particularly kind to small animals. And so I think that even though he's not like a rescue in the truest sense of the word, he has, you know, fought a lot of battles, been through some shit. He's had to survive outdoors in Lanker, like the most magical place in the Discord. Yeah. So we have that we have that plotline in a way, not the most direct way. It's definitely taken a detour on the narrative motorway. And I will tell you, Grebo has an arc. He has a real arc in the witch's books. Yes, Grebo character arc. <laughs> so before we get to the, the our end stats for this particular book, I do want to mention two characters that briefly show up who are important in other books because this is something that Terry Pratchett does a lot of where you'll see like a glimpse of a character who is like a main character in a different book or at least an important character in in Weird Sisters in the scenes that are in Ankh Morpork in the Mended Drum we do see the librarian who is the librarian of the Unseen University who was magically changed into an orangutan at some point in the Rincewind books and refuses to be changed back. He actually ends the fight almost before it begins in Weird Sisters, so we see a brief glimpse of the librarian. We also, on page 219 in my book, hear the name Leonard of Quirm mentioned. 
And Leonard of Quarum, we are going to see him in other books as well. But he is a Leonardo da Vinci stand-in. He's the one who invented the machine that they use for the waves on in the disc theater. So that that's like a fun little shout out there. Oh, right. So kind of like how Rincewind appeared when they went to the Unseen Academy in Mort, where he was just there and he was like, you know, go do this, go do that. But it was Wind that was there, the star of his the star of his own series of books. Right, yeah. Terry Pratchett loves to do this, where he'll just have like a random character from a book show up in and sometimes they have a lot to do. Like you'll have there's a later book in the Witches series where an important character is actually like part of the plot, but a lot of times it's just like this, where they'll just be in one scene or they'll just be mentioned. But of course, we have to do our death sightings. There are two death sightings in Weird Sisters. The first one is fairly close to the beginning of the book. Like you mentioned, Nigel, on page six in my book, he shows up to collect the soul of Vernus, but realizes that Vernus is actually destined to be a ghost, which really annoys him, which I found very funny. He also shows up on page 265 for the whole scene. He actually plays himself in the play that Tom John and the rest of the stage players are putting on, which he gets a little stage fright, which I found to be very funny as well. So there are two death sightings. And of course, he then goes on to collect the soul of Duke Felmet. Mm, I, th- I think the play was a particularly, in- like, because death ends up getting stage fright, it's, you know, like, the play that goes wrong in a way where you've got this character playing another character who happens to be a version of himself. Yeah, I really like that play at the end because everything kind of just like just goes to shit. Like this is the scene yeah. <laughs> uh, like where he- it, everything goes to hell in a handbasket where all of the plots come together. All of the Shakespeare, Shakespeare's, I'm using Shakespeare as a verb now. <laughs> <laughs> all the Shakespeare's. Yeah, and then, like, the witches, like, take the place of their counterparts, and they make everybody forget the words of the play, and instead, like, what really happened come out of their mouths, and so we get, like, actual lines from Macbeth here, which is really great. Yeah, it is a really cool scene, the which is sort of the climactic part of the book. So, the first footnote of the book actually takes place on page 10. I'm going to read the first footnote. So, the first, the first bo- footnote comes when... Vernus is thinking about banquets and how he's going to miss them. He says, like, he, he liked a big noisy banquet and had quaffed many a pint of good ale. There's a little footnote on the word quaffed. And quaffing is like drinking, but you spill more, which is definitely a joke that repeats several times in the book. Quaffing, I think it's funny because, like, that is an old word just for, like, drinking and stuff. It came up in an episode of QI. It was where I first saw it. So I was like, oh yeah, I know what quaffing is, which is this, which is a strange like piece of knowledge to go into a book with, where you're like, ah, yes, I know what quaffing is. But they used to call like drink time <laughs> or whatever, they used to call it quaff-tide, which I think is very fun. Quaff-tide. Quaff-tide. I like that. I, also, it makes sense. Like this definition of drinking, but you spill more. It just, the word quaffing sounds like that. It sounds like you're spilling things on the floor. It kind of brings to mind like sticky like pub or bar floors. Yeah. And then as well you have that like later on in the um fight in the bar scene where Quell and Tom John they're like so this is what roistering is. <laughs> yes, the mended drum and then they go to the dwarf bar and they're all singing about gold. This is really the first book that we get an insight into a species other than human. 
we get well uh, as a main character who is a dwarf and so he talks a lot about like how dwarfs are obsessed with mining and they're obsessed with gold and he doesn't really fit in which will become a theme in later watch books mm. especially i'm I, i'm just waiting to break out like at the right moment to break out my gimli impression um where he says they call it a mine from lord of the rings <laughs> well we'll have a countdown to your your best gimli impression i'm excited but what did you think the best footnote was? Think possibly this one from page 278 of my edition, which is another one of the double footnote ones. Because of the way time was recorded among the various states, kingdoms, and cities. After all, when over an area of 100 square miles the same year as variously the year of the small bat, an anticipated monkey, the hunting cloud, fat cows, three bright stallions, and at least nine numbers recording the time since, assorted kings, prophets, and strange events were either crowned, born, or kidnapped, and each year has a different number of months, and some of them don't have weeks, and one of them refuses to accept the day as a measure of time. The only thing it is possible to be sure of is that the good sex doesn't last long enough. And so you've got a second footnote says the ca- the calendar of the theocracy of Muntab counts down, not up. No one knows why, but it might be a good idea to hang around and find out. And then the third <laughs> footnote, to be sure, is that good sex doesn't last long enough, is except for the Zabingo tribe of the Great Neff, of course. So it's like, what does that mean? Y- you know, we're just expected to know what the um, Zabingo tribe is doing. Right. Yeah, it's it, this is like the first example I think that we get of a triple footnote, which he, happens a few more times in his books. And yeah, by the time you get to the third footnote, it becomes like almost not understandable. Like it's almost just like what what? Like what is happening here? Like I I remember reading that footnote like three times, but also laughing, not being sure why I was laughing. Yeah, definitely. What was your favorite footnote, Tessa? So mine is also a little long. Mine was on page 201 in my book. And this is another example I forgot to mention of him mentioning a character from another book who's important. But it's the one where they're in Ankh-Morpork and Tom, John, and Wells try to stop some thieves from s- stealing from the fool. And they explain, the thieves whip out oh, yeah, their, the, like, the little business card. And the footnote, yeah, the little business card. And the, the footnote explains... Ankh-Morpork's enviable system of licensed criminals owes much to the current patrician Lord Ventinari. He reasoned that the only way to police a city of a million inhabitants was to recognize the various gangs and robber guilds, give them professional status, invite the leaders to large dinners, allow an acceptable level of street climb, and then make the guild leaders responsible for enforcing it on pain of being stripped of their new civic honors along with larger areas of their skin. It worked. Criminals, it turned out, make a very good police force. Unauthorized robbers soon found, for an example, (laughs) that instead of a night in the cells, they could now expect an eternity at the bottom of the river. However, there was a problem of apportioning the crime statistics, and so there arose a complex systems of annual budgeting chits and allowances to see that a the members could make a reasonable living and b no citizen was robbed or assaulted more than agreed number of times many foresighted citizens in fact arranged to get an acceptable minimum of theft assault etc over at the beginning of the financial year often in the privacy and comfort of their own homes and thus be able to walk the streets quite safely for the rest of the year It all ticked over extremely peacefully and efficiently, demonstrating 
that once again, a court that compared to the patrician of Ankh, Machiavelli could not have run a whelk stall. And that, first of all, Lord Vetinari is a character that's really important in the watch books. And so that, that's a reference to that. But I just, I love the system that Ankh Morpork has for crime. Like the idea that they have these guilds and the guilds control crime. And so it's actually more peaceful and more well thought out than if you just had criminals running around because they sort of police themselves. I just, I thought that that was hilarious. And I also find the idea of like Machiavelli isn't a character that exists in the Discworld, but the, but the narrator knows about Machiavelli. Like there's a lot of like, the narrator understands references to Earth without the characters themselves being able to understand those references. Yeah, as well, it sort of brings to mind, obviously now I'm not getting into all the complexities and stuff of Michel Foucault's uh, idea of the panopticon, where it's like you don't know whether you're being observed because it's a circular prison, so everyone keeps their behavior in check because the fear of being observed, almost. So it's like, they're committing their crimes and making sure that everyone meets the quota of like acceptable crime because they don't want to lose skin and end up in the bottom of the river. Right, exactly. And they like and and the idea is, is that it's all apportioned, right? Like you could get stolen from at the beginning of the year and then like be completely safe the rest of the year. Which Yeah. is not necessarily a bad system. I think that's interesting. Yeah, just get just get robbed before you get really rich. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what was a thing that made you laugh out loud while reading this book? Was there a moment that actually made you physically laugh? I'm going to have to go with the play at the end. Pure unbridled chaos. All, like, all this kind of chaos, all the characters are showing up and they're doing their own little thing and it feeds into everything that happens at the end. So yeah, I think the, I think the play at the end was the funniest scene in the book. Yeah, so one of the ones, I, I laughed a few times in this book, but one of the ones that just, like, I actually had to stop because I was laughing so much for a moment. When the Duke, so the Duke has ordered his soldiers to go and arrest Granny Weatherwax, but then they come back without her. And the Duke is talking about, like, oh, she, like, put a spell on you or, like, so showed yeah. you dark fascinations and forbidden raptures, like that kind of thing. And so it's like, don't change the subject, man, snapped the Duke, pulling himself together a bit. Admit it, she offered you hedonistic and licentious pleasures only known to those who dabble in the carnal arts, didn't she? The sergeant stood to attention and stared straight ahead. No, sir, he said, in the manner of one speaking the truth, come what may. She offered me a bun. A bun? Yes, sir. It had currants in it. Velvet sat absolutely still while he fought for internal peace. Finally, all he could manage was, and what did your men do about this? They had a bun too, sir. I'll accept young Roger, who isn't allowed fruit, sir, on account of his trouble. And like, I just laughed so hard at that because it's just like, yeah, she gave me a bun. Like, I wasn't going to arrest her. Like, and, you know, we all had a bun. And it was just, it, it's such a like, un, like the fury of Felmet is so undercut by the matter of factness of the soldier. That yeah, I the just... witches in this book definitely, you can definitely tell that most of what was written about Agnes Nutter in Good Omens came from Terry Pratchett. Oh, yes. I could definitely see that. A hundred percent. All right. Was there a scene in the book that made you think? Yeah, it's another one of the quotes that I had actually saved. It is... Doo -doo -doo. Well, so there was a few, so they're very short, though. 
Only in our dreams are we free the rest of the time we need wages. Yes, I love that And quote. then, destiny is important, see, but people go wrong when they think it controls them. It's the other way around. That's a good one, too, because there's so much about destiny and its shape in this book. It definitely brings to mind, like, Marvel's What If, which is currently coming out now. In one of the episodes, it's like, what shapes your destiny? Is it who you are, or is it, like, the circumstances of your world? Or, you know, like, what makes you you in the grand scheme of the multiverse? Yeah, it's it's really interesting the way that Pratchett kind of balances between, like, social and magical forces and individual forces yeah so the ones that i had written down were actually this is a quote that i think about a lot like i've thought about it a lot since the very first day i read it but it's from the first page actually of the novel where the narrator says it would be a pretty good bet that the gods of a world like this probably do not play chess and indeed, this is the case. In fact, no gods anywhere play chess. They haven't got the imagination. Gods prefer simple, vicious games where you do not achieve transcendence but go straight to oblivion. A key to understanding all of religion is that a god's idea of amusement is snakes and ladders with greased yes. rungs. Which, that is a great description of what I think a lot of about, I mean... I'm I'm not religious personally, but like I I just thought that that was an amazing description of a lot of different religious ideas. Yeah, because on the one hand you've got like Albert Einstein's God does not play dice with the universe or whatever, but then at the same time you've got like Monopoly and this like you know almost the King Lear of we are to the gods as flies to wanton boys they kill us for their sport. Yeah. It's very much like this idea of, like, if you actually look at what's happening, like, the gods don't actually play chess, which is a game that requires more imagination and more planning. It's more vicious than that. It's more mean-spirited mm. in a lot of ways. So the other one that I had was near the end of the book when Granny is watching the play, and she realizes the power of theater and the power of words specifically. So it's on page 246. Granny subsided into unaccustomed, troubled silence and tried to listen to the prologue. The theater worried her. It had a magic of its own, one that didn't belong to her, one that wasn't in her control. It changed the world and said things were otherwise than they were. And it was worse than that. It was magic that didn't belong to magical people. It was commanded by ordinary people who didn't know the rules. They altered the world because it sounded better. And I, I just love that description of the power of language and the power of art to really shape the way that we view history, the way that we view certain things, and the danger that lies in that. Yeah, to touch on it briefly, it's like W.B. Yeats, who I don't like, but I, I understand his like impact on the Irish poetic cycle and tradition and stuff, but he wrote an awful lot of like poems, uh, sort of, impelling people toward rebellion and anger and this kind of thing. And then he, when he was older in years, he sort of, he wrote another poem being like, did my words send them out to fight? Did my words get them killed? And the poet Paul, Mulda Paul Muldowney, I think is his name, had a wit witty kind of two-line aphorism type thing about it, it, which runs thus, 
If Yates had saved his pencil lead, would certain men have stayed in bed? It's a really complex topic, which we don't have the time to get into. But yeah, like those words definitely had impacts on those people. Right. And that is very much at the heart of certain parts of Weird Sisters and really Pratchett in general. There's a lot of themes of his about how words shape perception and how that can be really good, but it can also be really bad in the way that it can kind of control certain certain ideas, certain ways that we view history. There's the scene near the beginning, the fool says, like he gestures at the picture of this monarch who's like called the good. And he says, what was he good at? We'll never know, but he will always be remembered as the good. Mm. And like, what is a prophecy, if not a bunch of words that everyone takes very seriously? That is true. That is absolutely true. All right. Is there anything else that you want to talk about, about Weird Sisters before we wrap up? Uh, not really. I think we hit an awful lot of what I wanted to discuss here. We w- we covered a lot of ground, from Shakespeare to, like, the philosophy of words. We did a lot. Yeah, for sure. Next episode, we are going back to the very beginning and meeting Rincewind and the luggage in The Color of Magic. Feel free to read along with us or listen in to get a feel for Pratchett's books or to remind yourself of why you love the Discworld so much in the first place. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? Okay, so many places you can find me, my podcasts, Hyperfixations, and Archive Admirers on Spotify under those names. Um, Hyperfixations is on Instagram, at HyperfixationsPod, on Twitter, HyperfixationsP. Archive Admirers is at AdmirersArchive on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, at spicy nigel where i'm tweeting every single deranged thought that comes into my head you'll see me just posting if i get a a new idea for another podcast it will just go up as a tweet into the ether you know just make of them what you will yeah that's mainly where you can find me woman of many podcasts yes that's me all right you can find me on twitter and letterboxd at suela tessa Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog. That podcast is on Twitter, at Monkey Backlog. All right, Nigel, do you want to read us out? Yeah, I do. Do you have a selection to read for us? Yeah, I'm going to read from uh, the end of Weird Sisters here. So I'll open it up now. Okay. Right then, said Granny. Anyway. Look at it like this. Royalty has to start somewhere. It might as well start with him. It looks as though he means to take it seriously, which is a lot further than most of them take it. He'll do. Margaret knew she had lost. You always lost against Granny Weatherwax. The only interest was in seeing exactly how. But I'm I'm surprised at the two of you. I really am, she said. You're witches. That means you have to care about things like truth and tradition and destiny, don't you? That's where you've been getting it all wrong, said Granny. Destiny is important, see? But people go wrong when they think it controls them. It's the other way around. Bugger destiny, agreed Nanny. Granny glared at her. After all, you've never thought about being a witch was going to be easy, did you? I'm learning, said Magret. She looked across the moor where a thin rind of dawn glowed on the horizon. I think I'd better be off, she said. It's getting early. Me too, said Nanny Og. Our show frets if I'm not home when she comes to get my breakfast. Granny carefully scuffed over the remains of the fire. When shall we three meet again, she said. Hmm? The witches looked at one another sheepishly. I'm a bit busy next month, said Nanny. Birthdays and such. Um, 
And the work has really been piling up with all this hurly-burly, you know. And there's all the ghosts to think about. I thought you sent them back to the castle, said Granny. Well, they didn't want to go, said Nanny vaguely. To be honest, I got used to them around the place. They're company of an evening. They hardly scream at all now. That's nice, said Granny. What about you, Margaret? There always seems to be such a lot to do at this time of year, don't you find, said Margaret. Quite, said Granny Weatherwax pleasantly. It's no good getting yourself tied down to appointments all the time, is it? Let's just leave the whole question open, shall we? They nodded. And as the new day wound across the landscape, each one busy with her own thoughts, each one a witch alone, they went home. Footnote. There is a school of thought that says that witches and wizards can never go home. They went, though, just the same. The end.